All right, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as we continue to buttress the bridge. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. And again, before we get started, don't forget, during the month of May, we're collecting non-perishable food and paper products for the New Kensington Salvation Army. This, our support of them is very much appreciated by them, and especially in light of the fact that certain organizations, such as the United Way, have pulled support from faith-based, so-called faith-based organizations. So us believers got to stick together. And this is a good way to do it, a good way of letting your light shine in this community. So please keep that in mind. And there's a list of the appropriate items out on the information table. Okay, let's take a few moments of silent preparation. Father, as we approach your word tonight, we recognize our solidarity and oneness and unity with many of our groups across the nation, many listeners, but also in a larger sense with the entire proleptic community of the church, which is Christ's body, even those who are, and perhaps especially those who are undergoing persecution. We pray that you'll strengthen them with might in the inner person, grant them the perseverance that creates a deeper confident hope in the eschatological coming of our Savior Jesus Christ. And we also recognize, because of the incarnation of our Savior Jesus Christ, our solidarity and unity with the entirety of the human race. And we thank you for the gospel by which you have invaded this evil age on a tremendous and successful rescue mission. May we learn more and more about this and therefore be more and more aware of Jesus Christ as an all-saving Savior and of a triune God who has invaded this evil age to deliver the human race and all creation. We thank you for this privilege. Open our eyes now to these things, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I guess my question in the past few messages is, can we detect a bridge between the two ideas of an unconditional salvation and a universal salvation? There is a a strain of findings on the level of theology in the past century that has been building. In fact, it's been since the end of the 18th century, there's been an apocalyptic view of theology that's transformed theology and is continually transforming theology. There's two strains of thought that we've been, I've been engaged in as a theological student. One is the gospel of the unconditional grace of God, and the other is the gospel of the universal grace of God. And my question was, I wonder if we can... S- build a bridge, not so much build one, but detect a bridge between the two in Paul. Finding out that we are saved or justified, and the word justified is far better translated as delivered, and liberated is another good way of saying it. 
that our justification or liberation or deliverance or even our salvation is tied not to a human act of faith, but a divine act in Christ, the divine fidelity of God demonstrated by the fidelity of Jesus Christ all the way to death on the cross. If we can trace, therefore, our salvation to the faithfulness of Jesus Christ and not to the human act of faith, then why can't that salvation be for everyone or why can't it be guaranteed to all the human race or even declared to be for the whole human race? Can we detect a bridge in Paul's epistles between the two? And if so, then we've gone quite a long ways to seeing Paul's epistles in their totality, all of his letters as presenting an apocalypse or a revelation of Jesus Christ in his universally saving significance and of the crucified Messiah having a universal impact of his cross on the, on the cross. So our old two acronyms are still in play, universal saving significance of Jesus Christ, universal impact of the cross of Christ, and if we can detect a bridge between unconditional salvation and universal salvation, then we are a long ways toward answering the question of this preliminary study, better call Paul. And in this study, I've been laying some groundwork and maybe building some scaffolding for future studies, future exegesis of Romans, a future exegesis of Galatians, possibly even of Ephesians. Whether I take those on or someone else does is up to God and up to his timing. So we have now seen that in Ephesians, without having to deal with the teacher, as Paul has to anticipate in Rome, a te- by the way, these teachers are Jewish Christian teachers who had a mission to the Gentiles, which was really not authorized apostolically. It wasn't authorized by the leadership of Jerusalem as Paul's was in Galatians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. There were certain false brothers, Paul said, in the Jerusalem church, and they authorized a mission, which was a law or a legalistic, or we could say a nomistic mission to the Gentile churches in which, as Acts 15, 1 says, Gentiles are told that unless they are circumcised, they cannot be saved. So Paul had to deal with, in Romans, with the arrival of the head honcho of those teachers. He doesn't have a name. He's not told, we're not told what his name is, but we might be shocked to find out who he is. And in fact, I've got a couple of theories that I'll probably never mention, but uh, I don't want to get in trouble with the Lord, for one thing, and with my fellow believers and for another reason. And also in Galatians, we know that there was an incursion of these Jewish Christian missionaries into the three churches of northern Galatia, where Paul had planted churches, and that is in Tavium, T-A-V-I-U-M, Ankyra, A-N-K-Y-R-A, and possibly Pessinus, or P-E-S-S-I-N-U-S. I'm pretty convinced that the churches were all in northern Galatia, and Paul planted them. And they had, he had spectacular success with the gospel. And the gospel elicited faith on the part of many pagans who then became addressable communities, given the ability to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, being the, given the ability through the Holy Spirit to bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. And then the incursion of these missionaries who had a different mission altogether. 
And so without having to deal with those situations, Paul writes in Ephesians, which is a letter to Laodicea. We have to, I don't have to keep saying that. But in Ephesians, Paul has no exigency, really, no emergency, no crisis to deal with. He doesn't have a problem to solve. He simply has become aware from prison in Asia Minor somewhere, fairly nearby, of a congregation in Ephesus, or a congregation, rather, in Laodicea, another one in Colossae. There was one in Ephesus. These are churches that he didn't particularly plant, but God gave him authority over them or encouragement for those as Paul was an apostle. So when he wrote to what we call the epistle to the Ephesians, he didn't have to deal with the teacher as in Romans or with the incursion of false teachers in Galatia supported by false brothers in the Jerusalem church. Paul called them that, not me, false brothers in the Jerusalem church. Paul is giving a pristine account of the gospel to a newly formed addressable community in Christ in Anatolia in the middle of the first century. We're pretty sure that Ephesians was written in the middle part of AD 50, 20 years before the great conflagration in Jerusalem and a year or so before, maybe two years before the writing of Romans. And so it is, not late, as some have thought, and it's not written by someone other than Paul. I think there's a better research that Paul was, in fact, the actual author of Ephesians. And he had no problem to deal with there. He did do some warning. And there's no question, as we've seen Sunday morning, that in Ephesians 1, 1 to 14, for example, in examining that passage, and that's another thing, it's important that we engage the texts in Paul not just make theories about what he said, but engage the text and see if it's really in there. And that's what we're going to do again tonight with 1 Corinthians 15. So there's no question in Ephesians 1, 1 to 14, that their salvation is the result of a divine action taken in Christ. Neither is there any question about the eschatological, Christological intention of God to bring all things that's our, another word that remains in play in Paul. Tapanta. That's the all things without exception. All created reality in all of its temporal eons. All created reality in all of its temporal eons. All that is not God but has come forth from God. Tapanta. We are, Paul makes it very clear in expressing the word of our salvation that as a result of a divine action taken in Christ, these, believer, these people were shifted from Adamic ontology into Christ. So there's no question about the eschatological, Christological intention of God to bring all things universally to their totality in Messiah in Ephesians 1, 9 through 11. The word anakaphalaiao, which is the, one of the key words in our study, anakaphalaiao, Make that two O's. The last one is long O. Anakephaliao means to sum up or bring to the totality of certain things. Bring certain things to their totality. Aristotle would call it their actuality. Going from potency to actuality. Going from, po from potency or an injured potency 
in our case, in terms of creation, to a full actuality. And so it is God's plan, God's intention to bring all things, that's the universal created reality, all of the proportionate universe in all of its temporal eons into Christ, to bring all things, the universe of proportionate being, to be brought from their injured, its injured potentiality. Remember, nature screams, creation screams in its injured potentiality. All creation is groaning, and we groan with it. It will be brought from its injured potentiality to its redeemed actuality in Christ. That means that when we're redeemed, we become fully human. In resurrection, we become totally and fully human. God's action, though it's divine, is surprisingly humanizing. It takes us into the realm of being truly human. There is one man, Christ Jesus. He's called the man because he's really right now the only truly, fully human being. And we will be that through bodily resurrection, but we are that already in Christ by virtue of our being in Christ. The church is not all that God redeems because God redeems all of humanity, but the church is the vanguard, the human vanguard of a divine invasion of the human race with the gospel. And I'll be explaining that more and more. I have to almost get catechetical in that and get repetitious with what the gospel is. What is the gospel? It is D-Day. It's a day of deliverance. It's the announcement of a day of deliverance. In 2 Corinthians 6-2, Paul says, now is that day of salvation. The gospel is a, an announcement of a full-scale divine invasion of the present evil age to rescue and deliver all of humanity and all of creation from certain suprahuman powers under which they are enslaved. And we have to understand so that we don't offend our evangelical brethren that our enslavement to sin includes our complicity with sin. When we're saved, we're saved from the enslavement of sin. We're saved from our complicity with sin. That's what Romans chapter 6 is all about. There's people that are afraid that this message skips over the sinfulness of the human race. It makes it more clear than any other teaching I've ever heard. So we'll, we'll clarify a lot of these things. So the gospel, as Paul preaches it, is really the gospel of God's son. It's the full-scale divine invasion, a day of deliverance announced in Isaiah 49, 8 as future, announced as present by Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 2. Adding to what we got all the way back in our first message in John's gospel from 317, the first divine mission, God sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but so that through him the world would be saved. That's the divine invasion. So I could add to the idea of a divine invasion that it's a divine invasion carried out in two specific divine missions. The divine missions are, first of all, the mission of the son beginning with his incarnation, going through his life and teachings, miracles, ministry, career, and passion, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, exaltation at the right hand of the Father, enthronement. And then the second divine mission is the mission of the Spirit, the sending of the Holy Spirit that Jesus speaks of often through the chapters of his upper room discourse in John 14 through 16. 
and which Paul speaks of. In fact, in the heart of Galatians, which I, can, I see as being an apocalypse in itself, in the heart of Galatians, we have Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, in which the two divine missions are outlined. God, in the fullness of time, sent his son, born under the law. That means he was born in the same conditions of all humanity, under certain enslaving elements, and therefore he experienced what human beings experience except sin. He doesn't experience complicity with sin. He was born under the law, born of a woman, in order to redeem us from the curse of the law. The us there, as I'm going to show, is not just Jews saved from the curse of the law, but Jews and pagans or all humanity from the curse of the law, because the curse of the law is a curse written over the entire human race. Paul shows that very clearly in Galatians. And then he says he has also sent out ex apostello, the spirit of his son into our hearts, causing us to cry out, Abba, Father, giving us the same spiritual reality in which Jesus Christ moved and lived and had his being. So again, we can, we can leave some of the passages that we're wrestling with the idea of universal salvation and go to some passages that are a little easier that we've already referenced in Revelation where Paul blatantly states that his gospel has a universal horizon. And it's very clearly stated. And that way, that way, I think we can detect a bridge or we can build a bridge using Pauline doctrine. And tonight I'm going to simply call it buttressing the bridge. You don't just build a bridge, but you buttress the bridge with beams and et cetera so that you can have a bridge that you can cross over that is going to be there forever. So we've already seen in Ephesians that we could say, borrowing Aristotle's terms, that all things, that means all the universe of proportionate being, will be brought from its injured potentiality to its redeemed actuality in Christ. That's Ephesians 1, 9 through 11, very clearly stated. In other words, Christ is being revealed in Ephesians in his universally saving significance, and the church is portrayed right in verse 12 as those who are the first to hope in him, indicating that there will be many more to follow. Arguably, arguably, all of humanity will follow if we take 1 Corinthians 12.3 with Philippians 2.9 to 11 seriously. And I think we should. 1 Corinthians 12.3 says, No one can call Jesus Christ Lord except by the Spirit. And that would mean pretty much no one can do that so that it counts and so that it's from the heart unless it's by the Spirit. The Spirit is sent into our hearts to cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit is sent into our hearts to cry out, Jesus is Lord. And in, if you connect that with Philippians 2, 9 to 11, seriously, then you have a combination that's quite powerful because Paul announces that every tongue will acknowledge that Yahweh is Yeshua, that Jesus is Lord, or that the Lord is Jesus. And if... Everyone acknowledges this, that's all the human race, and it's only done through the Holy Spirit, then this is a salvific confession, not a forced confession. This is an uncoerced confession, not a forced confession by all of humanity. And so in Ephesians, in his universally saving significance, Christ is portrayed as he is in Galatians. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 3 to 5 is the heart of Paul's gospel, and at the heart of that heart of that gospel is the phrase, God sent his son. 
at the heart of John's gospel, God sent his son. And then God sent the spirit. We must recognize that the spirit that is sent is none other than the spirit of Christ. That spirit embodies the crucified Christ. He is not some other spirit. He's not some general spirit. He's not some nebulous ghost. He is the spirit of the crucified Messiah. And he brings about and carries to the human race the impact of the cross of Christ. And ultimately, I say, makes it universal. There's something very encouraging and very heartening, something that gives us a lot of courage in the trenches of battle and the, uh, the apocalyptic eschatological battle that we're engaged in right now. Some great courage is given knowing that the victory is wrought in Jesus Christ and that the victory is a divine action, ongoing action through the Holy Spirit. So the church is portrayed as the first to hope in him, indicating that the church is a provisional and proleptic community. And that is an announcement that all will follow. Again, especially if we take 1 Corinthians 12, 3 with Philippians 2, 9 to 11, along with 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 28, which is one of those Pauline passages that parallels the apocalypse of John and kind of summarizes the entirety of John's apocalypse, which we call the book of Revelation. We have a great advantage as a congregation that we're backing into Paul from John's gospel. The great parallels between John and Paul are notable. They are many. They are remarkable. And it's one of the major things I have majored on since the beginning of John's gospel. Let's look at it then and engage with the text. And let's see if we can detect a bridge between the two strains of theological doctrine, one about the unconditional grace of God or the unconditional grace of salvation and one the universal salvation. Is there a bridge? First Corinthians fifteen twenty it says, but now Christ, and I've translated this from the original text, so this is my translation. But now Christ has been raised up from among the dead ones, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, there's a few things I want to observe in this without doing a full-on exegesis. Paul does not say here those who have fallen asleep in Jesus, which he does say in 1 Thessalonians, uh, they have fallen asleep in Jesus. It seems that Paul went through a kind of a development of understanding of what happens to believers at death. In 1 Thessalonians, written all the way back in 40 A.D., Paul wrote about believers falling asleep in Jesus. By the time he wrote Philippians, 10 years, maybe 11 years later, he talked about being absent from this body and being with Christ. To depart from this body is to be with Christ. So not asleep, but very much aware, very much aware of a far, far, far better existence in Philippians 1.23, also in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 8. He underwent some kind of a development in his understanding, in his insights. So now in, now Christ has been raised up from among the dead ones, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Please note, Paul does not say those who have fallen asleep in Jesus, but more generally, those who have simply fallen asleep, those who have died. And we could say whether they died in Jesus or not, he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep those who have fallen asleep then refers to all the dead who will be raised so all the dead are indicated here all those who have fallen asleep 
will also be raised. 1 Corinthians 15, 21, for since death came through a man, we know that to be Adam from our already study in Romans chapter 5, so also through a man, the resurrection of the dead. In Romans 5, Paul makes it exceedingly clear that through one man, Adam, death passed to all the human race, and that through one man, Jesus Christ, Life comes to all. He calls it life-giving justification or life-giving deliverance. He makes the same point here in 1 Corinthians 15, though in another context and while tackling a different exigency. In other words, in 1 Corinthians, he's dealing with a doctrine that was circulating and that denied the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ and the physical bodily general resurrection of all humanity in the future. Paul is combating this while at the same time establishing some phenomenal Christological doctrine. So in Romans 5.18, he calls calls it the life-giving justification that comes to everyone, and that justification is life, a life shared with Jesus Christ. Romans 4.25 says that he was handed over and willingly handed himself over, according to Galatians 2.20, for our sins. Our there is a possessive pronoun referring to all of humanity, otherwise known as us, otherwise known as U.S., which stands for something. So then... He was handed over for our sins and resurrected for our justification. Again, the possessive pronoun our there, hamon, would have to relate to the justification of all humankind. Because in Romans 5.18, he blatantly states it. Through the disobedience of one man, the many were rendered sinners. And through the obedience of one man, the many were rendered righteous or justified or delivered. And because through Adam, death came to all, through Christ, life comes to all. And so by an apocalyptic definition, justification, or Lou Martin called it rectification, it's a little better word, he calls it, but he defines it as deliverance from certain suprahuman enslaving powers, including death. So justification, by its very definition, is a deliverance from certain suprahuman enslaving powers, including death. If we capitalize D for death, and we capitalize S for sin, and we capitalize flesh as one of the suprahuman cosmic actors in the apocalyptic war, we'll understand the gospel much better. Because we are dealing with powers that enslave creation and the human race, from which the human race and creation could never extract itself. It requires a divine action as the Christian spiritual life, which I call the higher integration of human living requires an ongoing divine action. It is God in you, both willing and doing of his own good pleasure. So we have to establish the Christology first, then the pneumatology, which is enveloped by Christology to be delivered or liberated from the enslaving power of death is simply to be made alive with Christ. As Paul says, In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5, being dead and while dead, or when you were dead in sins, you were made alive together with Christ. This life is not just life as a general nebulous term, 
but the very life of Jesus Christ that we share. We have a shared existence with Jesus Christ, and that's going to have an impact on our spiritual lives. To be liberated or delivered from the enslaving power of death is to be made alive with Christ. Now let's look at it in context, the verse that we've referred to often. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-two. For just as in Adam, the man through whom death came, all die. So also in Christ, all will be made alive. And you can't qualify that all as all in Adam is all humanity, but all in Christ only means a selective group. That pushes us back into what I call a horribly inadequate Calvinism. Calvin understood, at least his students understood, and the system of Calvin understood, that salvation comes by, a, by an act of unconditional election. And that it is because man has total depravity, which I'd rather refer to as a radical incapacity, that requires an unconditional election by God. And I reject the notion of a limited atonement because the Bible is very clear that the, the atonement of Jesus Christ, one died for all, and so all died. He is the propitiation for our sins, but not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. So the TULIP acronym that is supposedly indicative of Calvinism, the first one I think is correct. Total depravity, which we would say radical incapacity of man to save himself. It doesn't mean that man is as evil as man can be. It just means that as Psalm 143.2 says, no man can be, no person, no flesh can be justified in God's sight through, as Paul says, through the works of the law or by any other means. True Judaism never taught that anyways. So the, the T is relatively correct, the U is relatively correct, but Calvin then said that there's a limited atonement, so there's an unconditional election of a certain segment of humanity, and the rest of the humanity is predestined to an eternal hell. And so their only, their only guilt is having been born. And that's a horrible system, and that does not depict God in his true nature and his true reality as love and it's a terrible and horrifying blasphemy, in my view. The I, I think, can also be verified irresistible grace, and we could better translate it or better understand it and conceive of it as an unconditional grace, that we are saved by an unconditional, presuppositionless grace. No requirement is put upon man for salvation. That does not mean, listen carefully, that faith is not involved that human faith is not involved in Christians. But this faith is elicited. It's part of a divine line. When the gospel is proclaimed, it elicits, ignites faith. I like to think of it as Proverbs twenty twenty seven. The spirit of a human being is the candle that belongs to the Lord. It's the spirit of man that belongs to the Lord. And when the Lord, when the gospel is heard, the spirit ignites or lights the wick of the candle of the Lord. Faith is elicited. So even our faith has to be perceived as being in the divine direction, the divine line of direction of salvation. Faith is elicited, as Paul said in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 2. When did you receive the Spirit? On what occasion? At what moment? At what crisis moment did you receive the Spirit? As a reward for doing the works of the law, or at the gospel, or at the report, akoe, the report 
of faithfulness, the report of Christ's faithfulness, which elicited your faith. It's astonishing what happens when we preach the gospel and rooted in Jesus Christ's faithfulness, because that elicits faith in people who don't have to worry about believing. It elicits their faith rather than puts the responsibility of faith on them as if it's a requirement for salvation and a condition to be met for salvation. And so they're constantly wondering and never come to assurance. They never come to the certainty of their salvation because they never are sure if their faith was enough and didn't, whether it met the standard of God enough. So when the gospel is truly proclaimed, it is a revisitation of God right into history. The event of Christ is repeated and the salvific act occurs and it elicits faith as it goes forward. And that should be very well understood by now, but we're going to keep making it clear and clear. For just as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Again, made alive is another term of justification. Romans 5.18, that's probably at the heart of hearts of what I've been teaching. Romans 5.18 to 19 specifically, compared with Galatians chapter 3 and verse 21, and compared with Romans 5.1 and Ephesians 2.5. The law could not justify, meaning the law has no power to give life or create life. God alone has that power. So justification is, by its very definition, the gift of life. Justification, or again, per Lou Martin, who was one of the cutting, bleeding-edge scholars of apocalyptic theology, rectification, he calls it, means divine liberation of human beings and ultimately of all creation from enslaving powers from which humans could never liberate themselves, no matter how much they willed it, no matter how much they put forth effort to be emancipated. This begins to begin, it begins to unfold to us the true meaning of freedom. Emancipation from enslavement to other human beings can be effected by human beings, whether through military action or through legislation. One of the mottos of the special services has to do with liberation, the liberating of the oppressed. We can send military action, we can create a human military action to emancipate people from slavery to dictators or to evil religions. But that emancipation only eliminates enslavement to other human beings, which can be affected by human beings through military action or through legislation. And the Jews assumed that they were free because they were the children of Abraham. And Jesus said, anyone who commits sin or is complicit with enslavement to sin is a slave, a true slave. So you can be emancipated politically, emancipated socially, emancipated in a sense of having a freedom from other human beings and still be truly enslaved. One time Jim Morrison got into a lot lot of trouble. I think he was stoned out of his mind, but he called his audience a bunch of blankety-blank slaves. You're all a bunch of blanken slaves, he said. And that was a famous thing that happened. Well, today, we have people using all kinds of obscenity and vulgarity in public media, so I'm not going to repeat it as a gospel preacher. But as in Adam, all die, so in Christ, all will be made alive, is a blatant declaration of the universal horizon of salvation from Paul. In other words, now we're dealing with some passages where there's 
just a direct statement of this. And we've been dealing with places where I've had to fight it out, where it could be one way, could be another, and we fight it out to show it that, it's, that it has a universal horizon. Here's a direct statement of a universal horizon. And so, again, emancipation from enslavement to other human beings or institutions can be affected by human beings through military action or through legislation. But emancipation from sin, from death... And from the flesh, which is not the lower nature in Galatians, but a suprahuman power, which the rabbinical teachers used to call the impulsive desire of the flesh. I would give it another acronym, IDF. IDF is the impulsive desire of the flesh. It's not just our lower nature. It's part of the entire evil age. It's a supernatural cosmic player in the cosmic age, the evil age, as Paul called it in Galatians 1.4. His big addition to the creed that Christ died for our sins, or which was something he said, I repeat this tradition, I've received this tradition, I repeat it, Christ died for our sins, 1 Corinthians 15.3. But he added something in Galatians 1.4. Christ died for our sins in order to rescue us from this present evil age. And if Paul wanted to talk about hell, he should have right there, but he didn't. He never talked about hell. He never talked about salvation from hell. He never mentioned hell. He only mentioned death and Hades in the sense of having a single identity from which we are saved. We're saved from this present evil age, delivered from this present evil age, which is denoted by the flesh which is an impulsive desire. Now, people think of it almost all the time as a sexual desire. It is that, and it's an illegitimate sexual impulse, and it can relate to violent sexual immorality, which is rampant in our society today because the gospel isn't being preached, generally speaking, but can also refer to a desire to have approbation from God through religion and idolatry. It's a desire that we cannot extract ourselves from. We can't save ourselves from it. We cannot control that desire. It takes the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. It takes a divine ongoing action of the spirit of the crucified Christ to do that. So let me make the point again. Emancipation from enslavement to other human beings, such as the Jews from Rome, can be affected by human beings through military action or through legislation. But emancipation from sin from death and from the flesh or from the present evil age is only affected by God. Someone may be emancipated or liberated from slavery to another person or some enslaving human institution and yet still be not free. In fact, be truly and genuinely a slave to sin and complicit with that slavery, as Jesus said in John 8.35, and such such a person is truly a slave. That was very controversial for Jesus to say to a people that believed they were emancipated. And he said, but if you're enslaved to sin and are complicit with sin, he that commits sin is really a slave. And you need to be delivered from sin. So if you know the son, if you come to know the son in John eight thirty six, you will be free indeed. Free indeed from a slavery indeed genuinely liberated from a genuine slavery. So if you're free from sin, Paul even said in 1 Corinthians 7, if you're a slave, don't try to get out of being a slave. Let God have your life and see what he does with it because you're not 
You're free in Christ. You have a freedom that's greater than you would have had you been an emancipated slave. And by that, I mean a slave in the Roman sense, where a person could become a slave through debt or through military conquest. But Paul said there's a greater freedom, and it is the freedom in Christ. And so he said to people that gloried in their freedom, he said, remember, you are the slave of Christ. And he said to those that were enslaved, remember, you're free men in Christ. So freedom is something different than is usually dealt with. So being indeed a slave, that is to sin, to death, to the evil age, one needs to be free indeed, and this comes about only by knowing the Son, God's Son. That is knowing him by a shared existence with him. Let me say that again. When I say knowing him, I mean by a shared existence with Jesus Christ. When Paul said that I may know him, he meant that I may experience the fullness of what it means to have a shared existence with him in terms of his death, in terms of his resurrection, that I may experience that resurrection from the dead. So mimesis, as we often call it, or mimesis, some say one, some say the other, as found, for example, in Ephesians 5.1, it says, be imitators of God. In 1 Thessalonians 1.6, be imitators of the Lord. Mimesis, or imitation, is not the result of a staged imitation, but of a shared existence with Jesus Christ. Again, I'll say it. Mimesis, which we often have translated as become imitators or imitation. Mimesis, in the Greek, is the result not of a staged imitation, but of a shared existence with Jesus, a participation in Jesus' death, resulting in the manifestation of Jesus' life, as 2 Corinthians 4.11 says, that is, his ongoing living and loving fidelity in the church, in you, right in our mortal body, which now belongs to God. 1 Corinthians 15, I told you I'm not going to get too deep here, but in verse 23, but each in his own order, resurrection or life, the gift of life and resurrection, it comes in its own order or division. We could say battalion. This is a military analogy throughout. First Christ, the first fruits, he says. Then at his coming, that's the parousia when he is manifested to all. Those who presently belong to Christ. The second group is the vanguard or the church, the proleptic community who have life in the present age, the life of the next age they have already in the present age. And so the second battalion are those who presently belong to Christ, currently belong to Christ. Then the end, he says in verse 24, that's to tell us. We've already looked at that in Revelation twenty-two thirteen. Jesus Christ said, I am the beginning and the end, the telos. Then the end, that's the, we could say the third battalion, when he, that's Christ, hands over the kingdom to God the Father, having brought to nothing all opposing spheres of influence. Having brought to nothing all opposing spheres of influence. That means sin, the flesh, and death. And that means physical death over those that have fallen asleep. Raised to be justified or to be delivered. So then, Again, look, look at it in verse 24. Then the end, when he, that's Christ, hands over the kingdom to God the Father, having brought to nothing all opposing spheres of influence, like the present evil age itself. 
with the flesh, sin and death, and the law taken over by sin. The law, Torah, taken over by sin is also an enslaving power. That will have been brought to nothing, as as well as principalities and powers, evil angelic beings, and all their authority and power. So let's read verse 24 again. Then comes the end. That's the culmination when he, Christ, hands over the kingdom to God the Father, having brought to nothing all opposing spheres of influence and all their authority and power. All their authority and power. Verse 25, for he, Christ, has to rule. He must reign. He has to rule. This is the plan of God. Jesus Christ must rule as he is now. He is at the right hand of the Father, meaning that he rules now. He reigns now. The real world is the world over which Jesus Christ reigns, and we are called to live in the real world where Jesus Christ reigns, not in the world that's passing away where these powers seem to reign. We walk by faith which means we align to things as they really are. And reality for Paul, as reality for me, is Jesus Christ. Reality is Jesus Christ. Reality is not what you see. Reality is Jesus Christ. History is all wrapped up in him. The real world is the new creation that's being formed by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are to align to the real world. So he has to rule, I put it, until. The until, therefore, gives us the idea that becomes almost a hackneyed term, almost an overused term, almost a dead term, not yet. The not yet of the plan of God. For he has to rule until, until something that has not yet happened, but will happen. Until he, and that's the father now, because in Psalm one ten one, the father says, Son, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies a footrest for your feet. Psalm one ten one is referred to here in terms of the not yet. But Paul also quotes Psalm 8.6 to refer to the now. He has already put all his enemies under the feet of the Son of Man. So there's an already and not yet by a comparison of Psalm 110.1, the until, and Psalm 8.6, the already done. So we, live, we do live in the tension of an already and, and a not yet. For he, Christ, Jesus, has to rule until, and he is ruling now, that means, until he, that's the father, puts all his enemies under his, that's the son's feet, under the son's feet. We could say, and I have said it before, and I'll say it boldly again tonight, his nail-scarred feet, under his nail-scarred feet. On page 477 of Martin in Galatians, J. Lewis Martin on Galatians, he defines the gospel as, quote, Paul's proclamation of God's gracious and scandalous invasion of the world in the hideous event of Christ's crucifixion. There's the offense. There's the scandal. Let me say that again. Martin defines the gospel as, quote, Paul's proclamation of God's gracious and scandalous invasion of the world in the hideous event of Christ's crucifixion. The crucified Christ is the focus of Paul. 
Christ having been crucified and bearing the marks of his hideous crucifixion. That's the scandal of the cross. That's the scandal of the cross. How's God going to universally change everything and redeem everything through the hideous event of the crucifixion of his son put to death by those supranatural powers, those suprahuman powers in order that those superhuman powers would be undone by his resurrection. That's the gospel. And so I would say we could add here, of course, in brackets, not adding to Paul's words or adding to the scriptures, but adding the understanding that under his feet is his nail-scarred feet. We understand from Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10 that this Yahweh in the flesh would be pierced. And so his hands and feet are pierced. And so we could say this. Let's look at it again. And he, Christ, has to rule until he, the Father, puts all his enemies under his, the Son's, nail-scarred feet. The last enemy, that is the last suprahuman wielder of oppositional influence and power over mankind and over creation. All of creation, as we will see. Let's, let's say that again now. Verse 26, the last enemy. That is the last suprahuman wielder of oppositional influence and power over mankind and over all creation, as we're going to see. The last enemy to be brought to nothing, in fact, is a present passive participle of the verb katargeo, which is significant. Means, it means that enemy is presently undone. Death is presently undone because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and because of the joining of all who are joined to Christ into his life. Death is being stripped of all of its power now, but it will one day be stripped of all of its power and all of its victims will be reclaimed, including all the victims of physical death, including animal, human, and all creational victims of death. Reclaimed. And the universe will be big enough to contain them all. Don't worry about it. And does that mean your pets? Yeah, I do believe it means your pets. Now, again, the last enemy. Being brought to nothing. Being brought to nothing. And it's already been brought to nothing in your case because you've been made alive in Christ. The last enemy being brought to nothing is death itself. We've seen, according to Ramelli's ingenious exegesis of Revelation 20, 20, verses 14 and 15, that the only name not found written in the book of life is the name of death. And death and Hades are one. They ride the same horse. They ride the same pale horse. Death and with him, Hades. Death and Hades takes on one identity. Oh, death, where is your sting? Hey, death, where is your victory? Hey, Hades, if you want to say it, where's your victory? There's no victory for Hades. There's no victory for death, Hothanatos. And so the only name not found written in the book of life cast into the lake of fire is death itself. Death dies the second death. All humanity will be made alive in Christ. Are we building a bridge from the unconditional strain of doctrine to the universal strain of doctrine? We started out studying people that believed in the universal grace of God and, re- and ended on that note in Revelation twenty-two twenty-one: The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with pantone, all. 
And then we began, I began to study certain individuals who proclaimed Paul's gospel in a way that was not traditionally construed, but is, con- is construed rather as an unconditional grace, an unconditional salvation. And the two strains don't meet, generally speaking. The unconditional preachers don't say there's going to be a universal salvation. The universal salvation guys don't grasp, in many cases, the unconditional side. So these two strains maddened me until God says, there is a bridge between them, you know, and you can, it's not something you can build. So I don't want to wrongly say that, but it's something you can detect in Paul. Better call Paul. Hey, Paul, is there a bridge between the unconditional grace of God and the universal grace of God here? He seems to be saying, yes, there is in first Corinthians 15. So let's finish this off tonight. First Corinthians verse 1527a for he has subjected everything under his feet there's the already he will until he subjects everything under his feet now he says quote psalm 8 6 he has subjected everything under his feet psalm 8 6 under the feet of the son of man and by double entendre all humankind in him all humankind in him so there's the already For he who is going to do it has already done it. He's already subjected everything under his feet. And again, we could say nail-scarred feet. Verse 27b, but when he says everything is subordinated, it is obvious that the exception is the one who subjected everything under him. In other words, here's a distinction between the creation and the creator. When it says everything is subjected to him, there's an exception. And that's the one who does the subjecting, even the father. And that's God the father. So again, when it says everything is subordinated, it's obvious that the exception is the one who subjected everything under him. So what is distinguished here is the creator and the creation. The father who subjected everything to the son and all of creation. Here there is actually a hidden announcement that all of creation is going to be enveloped in the triune God. And the triune God is going to be permeating throughout all of creation in the end, in the telos in the final analysis, and I won't say at the end of the day. Now, although we could say it in a different way now. So, please note, everything means everything that is not God, therefore all created reality in all of its eons and history of existence. Tapanta correlates beautifully and splendidly with Ephesians 1.10, verse 28. Now, when everything is subject to him, then the Son, that being God's Son, the gospel is all about him, first, first two verses of Romans say, then the Son, that being God's Son, whom God sent into the world on the first divine mission that continues in the second divine mission, that the world would be saved through him. Everything, when everything is subject to him, then the Son will also be willingly subject to him, the Father, who subjected all things under him, so that, as the final result, God may be all and in all. Now, what does that mean? He was pleased to reside in his Son. This is my Son in whom I am pleased to reside. Put Matthew 3.17 with Colossians 1.19 and Colossians 2.9 in him, 
dwells all the fullness of divinity bodily, and you are complete in him. He was pleased, that's the father, who was pleased to reside in his son, will be pleased to reside in all things. Because Jesus Christ, according to Ephesians 4.10, will have filled up all things with himself. So God who's pleased to dwell in Jesus is pleased to dwell in all things which Jesus has filled up with himself. And that's the end. That's the end game. Paul's declaring the end here. God is declaring through Paul the end from the beginning. And so the end, therefore, is all things in Christ, summed up in him in Ephesians 1.10. All things filled up by him in Ephesians 1.21 and 22 in Ephesians 4.10. All things in Christ, in the end, the telos, and Christ filling up all things, and then God the Father being in Christ, and therefore in all things, with all things in him. And all things, again, is tapanta. It is all things without exception. It is all created reality, the proportionate being of created reality in all of its eons summed up in Christ. It's only, it only makes sense to me. And I'm talking about a different kind of common sense. Common sense is common because it only recognizes a human agency in history. Going beyond common sense into scriptural sense means that we recognize not just human actions in history, and history therefore being the result of human decisions and actions. We result, we see a divine action in history, and it only makes sense to me that God would wrap up everything in Christ and redeem everything in Christ because God created everything in Christ. It only makes sense. So it's actually a sensible thing. We're actually being reasonable. So then in closing, the end is therefore all things in Christ, Ephesians 1.10, Christ filling up all things, Ephesians 4.10, God the Father being in Christ, Colossians 1.19, and therefore in all things, with all things in him. All will be contained in God, and I use that word contained advisedly. All will be contained in God, and therefore totally, gloriously free. By engaging the text, we're seeing that Paul has a universal horizon that is blatantly disclosed at certain junctures in his letters. And that's the problem. Yes, Paul seems to say that, they'll say, but other, other places he seems not to say it. And we'll tackle those places like those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. What does it mean? And does it have an individual application or a communal one? Is it speaking of a church that would be ruled over by the Jewish Christian missionaries who want you to be justified by the works of the law, the results of which will be Galatians 5, 19 to 21, and no inheritance of the kingdom, and is it, or is it dealing with a communal or individual? It's really a communal idea. Those who produce the fruit of the Spirit by the Spirit's action, they are producing fruit that is in relationship to a harvest of eternal life. It's not talking about the loss of salvation. It's not talking about eternal hell. Never was, never, never could be conceived that way except by a distorted lenses of people who live in ressentiment and resentment and resist the Holy Spirit. So Paul has a universal horizon. And I'm beginning to see, all I'm saying is I'm seeing with the lenses that I'm receiving from Paul's gospel. That's all. And I'm reporting what I see. 
I'm saying what I see. And that's what Better Call Paul is all about. Thank you, Father, for making us an addressable community. You have created ears for us to hear. You've created eyes for us to see. And you've created in us, through the Holy Spirit, a love. You have poured out in us, rather, a love the love of God in our hearts. And we thank you for this privilege that we've had tonight. I pray that you'll take these many principles and this exegesis spoken through stammering lips, as we always say, and make it understandable and grant insight through it that has high motivation and high morale. We ask this in Christ's name.